Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I'm joined with my brand new co-host, Ben Reschlag. G'day, Ben. How are you, hey, mate? Hey, Theo. Thanks for letting me come in again. Well, uh, yeah, so obviously um, after the last episode, everyone, uh, you know, my tribute to my father, Jeff, um, I said I'd probably continue on with the podcast, and so that's certainly the intention now uh, to get Ben in, and I think Ben's a fitting person to uh, step into the role of uh, my uh, my uh, kind of humorous uh, sidekick, uh, my whiffing boy, as it were, um, and in particular because obviously if you've read the book, you'll know that uh, one of the acknowledgements in the book was um, Ben, uh, who's, who I've been friends with since, um, well, how going on? 20 years. 20 years now, yeah. so that's pretty crazy, and we're not that old. Um, so <laughs> we've been mates for a long time, and, and Ben also has a very philosophical viewpoint and has a relatively decent understanding of you know logic and critical thinking, um, relatively. I mean, he's better than most people, but he's obviously not as good as me, as you'll no doubt soon find out. Uh, obviously, the quality of the podcast will go downhill as well, but with Ben stepping in for my dad, um, you know, so I wouldn't expect too many more reviews on iTunes as being five stars. I wouldn't expect anything, obviously wouldn't expect any three-star reviews. Every, I, I think I'll be pitching for about a four-star review from most people if we, if we can aim for that, please. Um, and the other... Um, well, I can only get in hill, can't I? Yeah, well, that's right. Right, yeah. And the other thing uh, is to say also thank you to all the well wishes I got from my listeners. Um, I got tons of emails and comments on the website. Um, the uh, Skeptic Zone podcast, thanks Kylie uh, Sturgis for your uh, nice little tribute to my dad as well. It was just wonderful and a nice surprise. Um, so that certainly you know eased the, the difficulty with what um, I've gone through at the moment, what my family's gone through. So thank you very much. It's much appreciated. If I haven't responded to you all individually, it's because I'm lazy. Um, but also I got so many emails, it would have taken too long. So thank you very much. Um, it really did mean a lot to me and my family, and my mum especially, and so on. So thank you. Now, in this podcast, we're going to look at false attribution. And so I'm going to basically continue with the old format and begin with a reading from the book. False attribution, other terms and or related concepts, unreliable source, fabricated sources. Description. This fallacy in reasoning occurs when an advocate appeals to a marginally relevant, irrelevant, unqualified, unidentified, biased or even non-existent source to support a claim. The advocate may in some cases have a half-hearted degree of faith in the alleged source. He or she may have a dim recollection of having read something somewhere about the topic. Or the advocate may deliberately fake knowledge of a source which he or she knows does not exist. Example. Simon Murmurgut and Jenny Peristalsis, I always laugh at these stupid names, Simon Murmurgut and Perry, Jenny Peristalsis are selling homemade herbal extracts at the local market. They have a sign at their stall advertising a special slimming mixture. The main ingredient is paspalum juice. They are challenged by Kevin Jaded, a sceptical bystander. He says, How do you know it works? Simon immediately responds, 
There has been a recent study published in the Medical Journal of Patagonia, which shows that eating four grams or more of paspalum each day results in a loss of up to 500 grams of body fat per fortnight. Comment. If Simon did in fact read such an article, and if he is truthfully reporting the findings, he is not guilty of false attribution. However, if he only thinks that Jenny may have mentioned about a month ago or two that she had read somewhere in a South American journal that eating some paspalum each day results in the loss of some body fat, then he is guilty of false attribution. In this case, he is deliberately misleading Kevin about his own degree of certainty about the supposed facts. If, however, Simon is just inventing the reference, then he is guilty of the most reprehensible form of false attribution, deliberate deception through the citation of a fake source. The deliberate or inadvertent fabrication of a source of information is a common feature in vigorous discussions. It is a tactic often used in desperation by advocates when they feel that the argument is about to be lost. The seeker after truth will often be assured by advocates that they have read some compelling facts about the topic under discussion, facts which unequivocally support the advocate's position. The initial response of a seeker after truth to apparent dissembling of this kind should be a courteous request for a specific citation. This request should not be in the form of a provocative challenge if the sceptic wishes to maintain a positive emotional climate as the discussion proceeds. In making the request, the point should be made that going directly to the source is always more reliable than a second-hand report. Skeptical seekers after truth will not reject claims a priori, nor will they accept a claim a priori. They will reserve judgment on an issue and ask advocates for details of the source, with a view for reading it for themselves. Note that this request for a citation so that the sceptic can read the alleged information for him or herself will not usually resolve the question on the spot, so the question may remain open. However, the more dedicated debunker may decide to pursue the issue beyond the particular discussion as a matter of principle. If the sceptical opponent subsequently finds out that false attribution has taken place, he or she could take the trouble to contact the evasive advocate, perhaps even several months after the initial discussion, and point out that the source cited doesn't exist or the advocate's interpretation was in error. Yeah, okay, so I think um, a a couple of points that I'd make in addition to um, that now, especially that last bit about how you can go look it up later, since we wrote the book, the advent of, you know, 3G connectivity and smartphones and all that kind of stuff and, you know, allows you to actually check a lot of facts pretty much on the spot. Most people would be able to do that, especially if you use your powers of Google Foo as the term that you just introduced me to recently, Ben. I can't claim credit for that one on you. But you introduced me to it. I did introduce you to it. (laughs) And I loved it. And I used my Google Foo to find out what Google Foo meant. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's one thing you can do, obviously, is you're able to uh, check a lot of people's facts on the spot because they can say, oh, we you read that, you know, you can use things like Google Scholar or do a database search. Wikipedia is your Yeah, Wikipedia, absolutely. And you can do that, although Wikipedia will get into in terms of the ultimate false attribution of using Wikipedia for evil um, shortly. But, you know, you're able to actually check a lot of those things on the spot. So I think, you know, as we move forward in technology, the idea that you could make up something is is going to be more and more difficult. Uh, It gets more difficult to get away with. Yeah. Well, people still try and do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They just get found out a lot quicker. Yeah. Actually, and the, the one, th- when I'm thinking about, when I was reading that, I was thinking about um, our, our, our good friend, um, who sure remained nameless, Tim, um, and he, he used to always cite statistics, and he'd be like, you know, ten, and, and, you know, this was 
back in back at university days, I think. And one day I finally said... Before the so, internet. Yeah, before the internet. <laughs> I said, oh, well, when the internet just started, yeah. I still remember using, um, having to... Uh, go through categories. Items. Well, I remember you'd going, instead of typing in a search term, you'd, you'd browse the internet through categories on Yahoo or something. It was ridiculous. Um, Alta Vista, that was the other one. And, and he, um, and one day I said, oh, so where'd you get this decision? He said, oh, I just made it up. He says, yeah, I always make them up. No one ever asked me for it, but. <laughs> and now, of course, as we all know, 58% of people make statistics up on the spot and 39% mm. of people believe them. Uh, I think we should also mention that Tim is actually a professional academic as well. Yeah, and a professional <laughs> bullshit artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing is he, um, uh, that, having that authority. Yes helps dramatically as well so but yeah i think um that that's certainly an important thing is being able to actually say well where did you get that that source from and as we've seen all the time when the media reports um uh sources too they often get it wrong anyway so to actually find going to the original source i think is really really important i think the other um uh thing to talk about it's probably not we haven't really that example didn't go into it in too much um detail but if we think about um another variant of false attribution, which is quoting people out of context. And I think uh, that's certainly a, a variation of a false attribution where you might be accurately quoting what they said verbatim in terms of the actual words they used, but you're deliberately leaving out information. Mm, or Quote mining. Quote mining, yeah, yep, yeah. To make them look like they're holding a different position than they really hold, i.e. that is, again, a false attribution because you're attributing a position to them. People might try and argue, oh, but I've quoted them word for word. Like, yeah, but you're using that deliberately to make it look like they held a differing position. So uh, before we started recording, the example I talked about was Darwin, and, you know, people, the creationists like to cite his sentences about how, how the, the evolution of the human eye fills fills in with terror and he can't imagine how it could have evolved, and that's all they quote. But, of course, he then goes on in the next couple of paragraphs to then explain how he thinks the eye might have evolved. And he was using that really for, uh, as a rhetorical device, rhetorical device to try and make a point. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, that's a really clear example. So, Ben, did you have uh, an example of um, that uh, kind of yes. thing you wanted to talk about? Yeah. Um, one of my favourite examples of this sort of thing generally occurs in uh, science reporting yep. in the mainstream media especially on uh, contentious issues like global warming. Yep. One particular example of this uh, misattribution stuck in my mind back from a well-known conservative columnist, uh, Piers Ackerman. In Australia. In Australia, yeah, I should so mention. A lot of our g'day to all our foreign listeners. I know there's a lot of you out there. We love you. And uh, back in, uh, in November in 2006, in the uh, Daily Ter- Telegraph, which is... Uh, one of the uh, yeah, quality, top quality, quality, quality newspaper yeah. in Australia, absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say budget level newspapers in Australia, but I, they're all budget levels. They're all, yeah. <laughs> anyway, he um, he he uh, his particular uh, pet issue is um, global warming skepticism, and uh, his um, in his op-ed he um, was talking about how that warming's were uh, from the scientists were being deliberately exaggerated, and to back up this this uh, this opinion that he has, he, he quoted um, John Houghton, who was the former chair of the um, IPCC, saying that unless that's the uh, International Panel on, on climate, climate Change. For those who don't know, but if you don't know, seriously, get educated. Google is your friend. Yeah, yeah, you should, you should Google. 
And basically what, uh, what, what he claimed that John Houghton said was that unless we announce disasters, no one will listen. Now, this is uh, not actually what That's John... a pretty damning quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and taken on face value, that is a damning quote, but unfortunately it's not actually what John Houghton ever said. Now, unfortunately for peers. Unfortunately yeah. for peers, anyway. Now, what, actually, what John actually did say, he said, if we want a good environmental policy in the future, we'll have to have a disaster. It's like safety on public transport. The only way humans will ever act is if there has been an accident. Yes. And that, unfortunately, is pretty much true, too. Well, think about the tsunami. Human, think, human about nature, all yeah. the, think about all the different um, natural disasters that have happened. They only act to prevent them after the fact. Think of, And even now, what happens is people forget how bad things were. So vaccines is a classic example where people actually forget um, that you know how bad the different diseases were before you know like polio and things like that. So people stop taking vaccines, and say so the public health officials have said the only way we'll get vaccination levels back up is when we have more outbreaks of stuff. Now, if you yeah, took that out of context, yeah. you could be public health official wants more measles outbreaks. You know, it's like no, that's not what they want. <laughs> they're talking about reality. Yeah. So it's the again, it's the context surrounding what they're saying. Is the important thing. Yeah. Now I think, and if you look at what what um, Piers was saying, unless we announce disasters, no one will listen. As opposed to what John actually said, if we want good environmental policy in the future, we'll have to have a disaster. It's yeah. like safety actually, it was worse. He said yeah. he should have quoted him saying that the head of the IPCC wants disasters to yeah. happen. <laughs> he could have made it even more worse. Quote that evil bastard. So basically, Piers's argument is that the IPCC are making stuff up. Yeah. And exaggerating it in order to get action to happen on climate change. Which again Where, is such an absurd argument if you actually do the logic on that one. Yeah. It's like, we don't actually think stuff's gonna happen, but we want you to act on it anyway. What? <laughs> really? <laughs> that doesn't really make much sense. I don't think too many, although actually in saying that, there have been some crazy arguments like that I've heard before where I think it was, um, and again, this might be a false attribution of my own, but it may have been in Canada, maybe it was the UK, where the, some association didn't want um, uh, to mandate seatbelts because then more people would... Um, survive car accidents, and then there'd be less organs to donate to for, for organ donors. <laughs> really? Does someone actually believe that? So I, 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 I choose to believe that because it's too funny to yeah, not be yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's a classic example, and I've actually got a similar one, um, which was originally on the Wikipedia entry for false attribution, uh, but has since um, overzealous editors have removed it, but I went back to the Wikipedia um uh, uh, history page to get this example again and I know this because I actually was the one who started the Wikipedia page on false attribution so I could reference myself um, via Wikipedia and then reference the Wikipedia via myself and thus I created the ultimate false attribution which we'll get into later um, but this is a good example Is that, was that a recursive false Yeah, recursive false, exactly right Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, this example comes from uh, the Associate Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Illinois in Chicago Peter Doran um, uh, so that w- who did you talk about? It was someone different, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, he was a lead author of a research paper about Antarctic temperatures that were published uh, in Nature in January 2002. And because he and his colleagues found that some parts of Antarctica were cool between 86 and 2000, his pa- paper was frequently cited by opponents of uh, global warming, such as Ann uh, Coulter and Michael Crichton. <laughs> sorry, I was a bit sick in my mouth then when I said Ann Coulter's name. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Oh, um, man, you know you want to. 
Uh, sorry, you're just making me gag a bit again. Um, in opinion pieces uh, in in 2006 in the New York Times, uh, uh, Doran uh, characterised this as a misrepresentation and stated, I've never thought such a thing. I would like to remove my name from the list of scientists who dispute global warming. Scientific findings run counter to the theory of global warming, said a headline on the editorial of the San Diego Union-Tribune. Um, one conservative commentator wrote, it's ironic that two studies suggesting that new ice age may be underway uh, may end the global warming debate. So, i.e., They've taken that little bit of data out of his report and completely misrepresented what the actual report said and what he believes and essentially put his name to the opposite view of what he thinks. And that, to me, is either intellectual laziness or complete and utter intellectual dishonesty. And it's hard to know it could be, like, could be a case of uh, selective blindness as well. Or maybe, yeah, but that's intellectual, I think that's intellectual laziness. Yeah, and that, that's what it laziness. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, yeah. Okay, the other one I to talk about um, is, and to look at as an example, is a much harder to detect version of a false attribution, and that's when it's actually a deliberate hoax. Uh, now, and so in this sense, you know, I, I can forgive people for falling for it as well, and, and, and the example I actually have is from uh, Australia, Maybe it was last year, I think it was, where there, a new TV show was beginning on our um, uh, national broadcast of the ABC, and they essentially, to try and launch their TV show, pulled a pretty impressive hoax. Oh, was um, very clever viral yeah, marketing absolutely, stuff. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, they do a lot of viral stuff too still, and but this hoax was pretty clever, um, and they produced, uh, they, they got a research report out there that said, that surveyed basically how gullible um, people from different capital cities in Australia were, and published their findings, and they found that Sydney, people from Sydney, were more gullible than people from Melbourne. And if you know anything about Australia, the rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne is, is very intense. And the irony of this, of course, is by believing it, you are thus proving their point, especially if you're from Sydney. Uh, but anyway, I've got a, uh, instead of me going through it, I've got a clip from, um, from a show here in Australia called Media Watch, which actually goes through catching other media and all of their flawed research and so on. Uh, they themselves have had their own problems with that too. I think they've they've lost a lot of credibility sometimes themselves and their own biases and whatnot. But overall, they're still very good um, and they're good at catching out, um, uh, you know, dodgy journalism and dodgy tech tactics and whatnot. So they they gave a good summary of um, this incident and let's have a little bit of a listen to Media Watch's background and analysis of this very impressive hoax, false attribution. <laughs> Now, should you believe what you read on newspaper websites or hear on the radio? MediaWatch viewers know that the answer is frequently no. But according to an outfit called the Levitt Institute, too many people do. It recently put out this report. Deception detection across Australian populations. Last Sunday, a media release about the research was picked up by Australian Associated Press. Its story was widely run on news websites around the country. As the Levitt Institute's Lauren Kennedy told the ABC in Brisbane next morning... We took uh, around 1,000 25 to 35-year-olds from five different states and we got them to read 15 different articles that were based on Australian history, five of which were complete fabrications. So I'm talking about Richie Benno serving in the Senate. Uh, Australia's first Prime Minister was an atheist. Uh, so Captain James Cook had three wives, that kind of thing. Around 33 radio stations, plus Fairfax and News Limited websites, gave it a run. 
It even made it onto Ten's bright new news comedy show, The 7pm Project. Now, in a report out today, uh, we found that young Australians are extremely gullible. News website Crikey's deputy editor, Sophie Black, said we shouldn't believe all we read. Once upon a time, you'd read it in the newspaper and you knew that a hundred different fact-checkers had checked the story, a sub-editor, an editor. But these days, information and news is put up so quickly uh, that, uh, you know, there's no one there to check it. Ah, Sophie, how true. And certainly none of these worthy news outlets seems to have bothered to check up on the Levitt Institute. But as the web enthusiasts say, the media may get more stuff wrong these days, but it doesn't stay wrong for long. That same day, MediaWatch received an email from a very savvy viewer about what appears to be a lovely self-fulfilling hoax. Our tipster had checked up on the Levitt Institute. Though it claims to have been founded in 2007, I established that their domain, www.levittinstitute.org, was only registered on 8 September this year. The tipster then Googled the name of the Institute's founder, Dr. Carl Vanson, and found very little, except a reference in Wikipedia to a... ...list of Ludwig Maximilian's University of Munich people. ...where, amid a panoply of Nobel Prize winners and the like, under... ...other notable alumni... ...is the entry... Carl Vanson, public intellectual and leading sociologist in Australia. Public intellectual? How come none of us have ever heard of him? Of course, there was another bloke who used the name Carl Vanson... As an alias. Would you like to see the rest of the apartment, Mr... Um... Uh, Vinson. Tell Vinson. And then there's the report itself. In amongst paragraphs of impenetrable mathematical gibberish is this sentence. These results were completely made up to be fictitious material through a process of modified truth and credibility nodes. Enough already. It's all a hoax. Okay, yeah. So as as you heard on uh, that clip there, it was, it, you know, it was it was done for a particular purpose, which was to a promote a new show, and they supposedly were trying to show how crappy the media were at fact checking and so on. But you know, to be fair, they had a fake website set up. They had an actual spokesperson that you could talk to on the phone. They had a media release, you know, all this kind of stuff. They even had a Wikipedia entry, as they said there, which you know, again, if you dug a bit deeper. But in the in this the game of new media with the the 24-hour, well, no, you've got the one-minute news, news cycle. Um, you, you can understand them for, for kind of, you know, falling for that hoax. And it's a great story, too, you know. You find out the Sydney siders are, are more gullible than Melburnians. I mean, that's that's always going to be an entertaining story, so news are going to go for it. And they did, um, you know, some of the, the, the shows uh, that talked about it, I think they talked about the 7pm project there, they, a couple of the people on there actually said, questioned it themselves and didn't actually, they said, I don't, don't believe it. They didn't now, you know, again, if you're going to set up an elaborate hoax, then of course you would expect to get away with it. Whereas there's some other, some other examples I can think of where probably a little bit of digging would have, would have found things out. So the classic, um, uh, one that happened here, the James Randi set up with, with back in the 80s with, uh, Carlos, the supposed, um, uh, channeler and he came out to Australia and, 
literally all you had to do was see this before the internet, but if there's one phone call over to the US, you would have seen it didn't exist. No one could be bothered to do that. And there's been similar type of hoaxes uh, over in Australia recently. I think there was one with Quadrant magazine. And yeah, someone, someone wrote, punked Keith Winshuttle. Yeah, wrote, him a, wrote a fake thing and said, and again, that just took literally a Google search to find out that was fake. Yeah. And then so, there was the most famous one of all. Oh, the, the uh, hoax. Sokal hoax, yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. And again, so if someone's going to fake you out, it's understandable in a way if they're deliberately doing a fraud. Um, and, and, and if you have no reason to distrust that person or whatnot as well. So, but it also shows, you know, that's why being a good skeptic is, is to actually, you know, double check your sources, try and find it out. And, and the basic things, having a good understanding of how, um, the, the internet works is really important, I think, because some of those basic things, such as with this one, with the Levitt Institute, if you're a journalist, and you don't know how to check about domain registrations, you know, you, you need to learn how to do that. It's not very hard, and then you can find out that, you know, if you don't know how to check the history edit page of Wikipedia, you know, you're in, you're in particular trouble as, as a journalist, I think, because they're some of the most basic fundamental skills you need to have now as a part of your Google foo, as we, as I'm now going to continue to use that word. So, yeah, I think that, um, uh, it can be forgiven in a way, those kind of things. But it's very clever, very clever hoax as well, so you've got to love those ones. The other type of false attribution, I think, too, is those those crappy emails you get where you get, um, you know, don't use uh, lip, Revlon lipstick because there's going to be lead in it. Pass it on to all your girlfriends. And they quote mm. some supposed professor. Uh, they've, they've infected Facebook now as well. Oh, God, don't, don't get me started on Facebook. Um but yeah, and 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 so those those ones again, if with the slight skills of using the internet, you find out that you go to you know um, Snopes.com or whatever, and you see or Hoax Slayer, and you see mm. the hoax emails too. But they all love using false attributions. They love to even a lot of them they'll attribute it to some medical centre and even some doctor, and they get rung up and asked about it for years and years of poor buggers. You know these hoax emails keep doing the rounds and they keep getting hassled by it and have to put up, you know, a big, dis- no, we did not say this, you know, so it can be such a pain in the ass for them as well. Um, uh, so what, the moral of the story is to make up your own medical research centre. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't inconvenience Well, them. I have often thought about doing that, Ben, because there's so much bullshit out there making money. Yeah. You know, quantum healing. <laughs> Actually, that should be, uh, we should do a show on quantum Misuse of the word quantum. Oh, well, I have talked about it a bit with um, your misuse of science and statistics on one of our older podcasts. I think quantum is in a special um, category oh, of its own. It's it? just unbelievable the amount of bullshit that's out there and the, the fact that people don't. The ignorance of their own ignorance is what really surprises me. And the again, unknowns, unknowns. Yeah, and, and again, with a background in physics. Like, I know that I don't understand quantum physics that well, but I know that I understand it better than most people. You know, at least I, you know, did actually have done the mathematics involved in quantum physics as well, and, you know, done a bit of philosophy around it too, but then these morons to make claims about it is just appalling. But anyway, that's slightly off topic. Now I'd like to present to you uh, what I call the ultimate false attribution, and I'm also calling on um, uh, listeners of this podcast to help me um, with my war on the editors of Wikipedia. Now, if anyone's ever tried any editing on Wikipedia, you know that it is an exercise in almost infuriating futility because uh, their people's own opinions come into a lot of the, a lot of what they decide to do. Now, I decided that there's a gap in the list of fallacies. There is no thing called a false attribution. Now, my father, Jeff, and I, we coined that sucker. And I wanted to get more prevalence, you know, not not purely for my own ego. I mean, obviously, that's a part of it. Uh, 
Now, what I did back in oh, a few years ago now, I can't remember when, maybe 2007 or eight, is I made an entry for false attribution, and I, and I think legitimately, and I referenced Humbug as the reference for it as well. So I've got a reference, but of course I was referencing myself. And then when I wrote a post about it on Humbug, I referenced the Wikipedia article as a reference to show the validity of false attribution as a fallacy, to say, hey, look, even Wikipedia recognises it as a fallacy, hence the ultimate false attribution where you're attributing something to yourself in a circular way. But, and so, and so the ultimate false attribution is without any disclosure, the advocate refers back to himself or herself as a reputable source to back up his or her own claim. So it's actually begging the question in that sense as well. Now, the problem is I've had that as a definition in the Wikipedia entry about false attribution and then some narky son of a bitch editor has reverted it. And I want to put that back in there, but every time I put it back in there, some son of a bitch takes it back. So I'm calling on people to make sure Wikipedia glorifies me... <laughs> in the correct way. <laughs> in the correct way about how awesome I am. <laughs> but Wikipedia is the ultimate place to do false attributions. And yeah, I'm so sure as you well know, Theo. Yes, right. Yes, I've, I have before, uh, you know, to back up any claim you're making, just go into the Wikipedia, make the edit yourself... Do a screenshot of it because it'll probably get reverted really quickly and then email it off to somebody. And that will work a treat on people. If you want to do a false attribution, just edit the Wikipedia page yourself. It's that, so easy. This in itself uh, raises the uh, important issue of always going to the primary source because uh, Wikipedia is not the primary source. No, and that, and that's um, a really good point because yeah. one of the, the things, when, it, when Wikipedia first started, you, you know, you just thought... This, this can't work, this is insane, you know, how can this possibly work? And I'll tell you what, it is surprisingly good, especially around things like science and mm. things like that, it's excellent. But, the big but is, depending on when you happen to hit it, because you don't know what the edits have happened and when they've happened. Yeah, you should always look on the talk page. It's an exercise in critical thinking, the use of Wikipedia. It's actually a really good exercise for students too, and so I would tell them to not cite Wikipedia in any of their research yeah. but I would say them to use it like crazy to do their research so you go to look at the reference, external references and so on and it's a brilliant way to the starting point to, the, to then move on well, to the later stuff. It's like uh, for old bastards like us back when we were learning how to write proper academic articles it's, it's all about, we were told the same thing except back in our day it was encyclopedias not Wikipedia. Yep, exactly right yeah, don't okay. cite an encyclopedia yeah. yep. and and so it's a really great starting point for research and, and just to learn about something, to understand it and to quickly check things yeah. as well um, but if you were using it you know, in a paper you wouldn't cite Wikipedia unless you were talking about Wikipedia itself, but you definitely use it for a starting point to, to scholarly research and so on as well, so it's an excellent exercise uh, in that kind of critical thinking as well, and I think um, uh, one of the other aspects of um, uh, the internet in general is that kind of thing where you need to actually go and look at the sources and who's writing them and where they're positioned, and, and to also challenge yourself to seek the alternative points of view about a particular issue. So what we deliberately, we always see confirming stuff. So it, we always read the blogs that we know have our point of view. We never read the alternative blogs because they drive us crazy. But this actually, oh, I had tipped this to Peter Ellerton, um, uh, the Queensland Skeptics and also the um, Philosophy and Science for Senior Secondary Schools um, in Queensland and uh, a really good bloke and very good sceptic and very good philosopher, uh, philosopher as well. And as he said at a recent conference that he was um, presenting at, um, challenge yourself to actually go and read for a month 
stuff by people you don't normally read, like the opposing points of view. So if you're if you're a left winger, go and read stuff by a right wing nut job, or vice versa. If you're if you're a right winger, go read some some sort of left wing pansy. And um, <laughs> or if you you know you're hardcore skeptic, go read um, Natural News for a month or whatever. You know, <laughs> it might want to make you tear your hair out and go insane. But it also it's a good challenge to keep you on your toes and to make sure you're not only seeking confirming stuff too. So slightly off topic, but I think that's a really really important point. Okay, well, I think um, you got any other of those points to add to that, Ben? No, I think false that's, attributions? Yep. that's pretty good. I think, pretty yeah. wrap it up. Yeah. Well, the last thing I want to wrap up, I did get an email um, a while ago now. I think it was actually back in January, and I never responded to it from um, Charo uh, Cerventi. And uh, so, sorry for not responding to you, but um, I think this is a... Uh, I'll bring it up now on the podcast. And the email says the following. It says, Hi, I was discussing with a friend how... Um, often people will excuse something purely because it's described as comedy, not serious or just a joke. Of course, something that is done non-seriously can still be harmful, so it seems like a poor argument to me. I wonder if there was a fallacy about this. It seems like a red herring type of fallacy, but I could not find any listed. Is there a fallacy, or am I wrong in thinking that this qualifies? So just really to re-emphasise again, something can only be a fallacy if it's an argument, so not just an opinion. But if someone's argument is, oh, well, we can excuse X because it was just meant to be a joke, that they're trying to make an argument then. So, yes, it could be a fallacy involved. Now, the red herring is, is a deliberate... Um, uh, Introduction of an external... An external thing yeah. that is not relevant at all to take you sidetracked from it. So the ultimate red herring we talked about in the podcast we did, um, that I did with my dad, uh, was um, the Chewbacca defence argument from South Park where... The guy's defending, uh, is attacking Chef, and he starts talking about, why would an eight-foot-tall Wookiee live on Endor with some Ewoks? Why would I be talking about that? It makes no sense. <laughs> the ultimate red herring. But, um, but So I don't know that it's a red herring per se, because I don't think you're trying to draw an external thing, but it's clearly just an outright non-secretary. It just does not follow. It does not follow because something is a joke. It lets you off the hook for the consequences of whatever it causes or for whatever effect it has in the real world. So And, and, and again, that depends on your... Um, that depends on your you know, your philosophical framework. So if you're a consequentialist and you think, well, actions have consequences and we evaluate the rightness or wrongness of an action based on its consequences, well, a joke has consequences. It can make you laugh, that's a good consequence, but it can also cause harm, you know, mental harm or even real harm in, in the physical world because it might incite, you know, right riots or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So so if there's a real consequence, then, yeah, a joke can have an effect and, and, and therefore, even if it's funny, it's not the ultimate defence. I think freedom of expression is pretty close to the ultimate defence, so no matter what the consequences. But, again, that's, that's not a logical um, uh, proof of that. That's just a, a position I've taken based on my belief, my the, these um, it's premises. It's a philosophical I, position. Yeah, I've, I've taken this philosophical position that freedom of expression should be the fun, one of the fundamental tenets of any healthy society, no matter what the consequences, within reason. And so it's the within reason bit where we have to argue about it. So, you know, I, I, I think there's some things that are really bad taste and not funny that I think probably sh- people shouldn't have done it, but I wouldn't say ban it, for example. So the recent example I can think here is in, in Australia was when The Chaser, the comedy show, did a skit about um, kids on uh, at the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which is the kids who are having cancer and, um, you know, wishing to go to Disneyland. And then they're saying, no, well, you selfish little bugger, why do you get to go to Disneyland? And that, to me, was just not funny. That was the biggest crime about that. I just went, I just didn't think it was that funny. And also, so that, I mean, that's the biggest crime is to not be funny. And then the second thing is, generally speaking, I think also that kind of humour should be 
in defence of people who are in a position of situation. Yeah, in def- well, in defence of people who don't, who are powerless in our society or who have the least power. So most of the time, these satire should be directed towards government or directed towards politicians or directed towards people in a position of power. You don't direct satire against you know homeless people, you know, because they're the people who need the, the help, and that's one of the best uses of comedy and the use of satire. I don't know, I think we've got slightly different opinions on this here. Oh, here you go. My, my perspective is that no one has the right not to be offended. No, I, look, so, and again, no, I, I agree actually with that. So yeah. even though it, I can agree that it was in poor taste, it's like I don't think we should stop people from making bad decisions. No, I, and, and that, that was my point, is I yeah. think I would never have said to ban it. But in saying that, my right also is to criticise that and yeah. say, you, you guys aren't funny, that was sh- that was crap, that but was shit. A more recent example yeah. is um, the that age writer, Catherine... Oh, D- Devaney, yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting yep. fired yep. for her, her Twitter brain. Yeah, brain. although, again, see, I don't think she should be banned from doing that, but also that doesn't mean there shouldn't be consequences as, as a part of your job. Mm. And, and so there's two different things. So it's like we're both yeah. public servants. Now, we know that in what we're doing right now, for example, if we said some stuff... Even though we've got freedom of speech, we're free to say it, but there will be consequences too if we said some, if we mentioned who our employers were and then, you know, publicly criticised them, there will be legitimate consequences for that too. So, now, we're not, but we wouldn't go to prison for it, for example. But we would know there'd be legitimate consequences. Now, again, yeah, stuff she said, I just thought... Yeah, papers for the rest yeah, of the maybe, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the back room. <laughs> yeah. But, but the thing is, what she said, again, the ultimate crime was, wasn't actually very funny. It was the main, uh. main problem. But again, Never would say you shouldn't be allowed to do that or ban her or whatever. Yeah. Kick her off Twitter. Kick Everyone's got the right to make a git of themselves. Yeah, and, and that's right. Yeah. And we can have a right to criticise it back. And, and but but that's that was my point is exactly that. I think people are allowed to make those things and allowed to say whatever they want, but they have to also be prepared to take whatever consequences flow from that too. You can't just say, "Oh, it was a joke," therefore you shouldn't be offended. You can say it was a joke. I don't give a shit if you're offended. Mm. That's different to saying you don't have the... I think people can be offended, but then we don't have to take their offence seriously either. Like, why do mm. I have to take your offence seriously? So if I'm insulting... If I'm not actually intending to insult you, you know, why... Or even if I am. Yeah, but even, no, but if I am, then I'm glad I offended you. So, so, but, you know, like, so it's a two-way street. It's like, well, I think you're being a bit precious. Why does your view automatically outweigh my yeah. view, you know. So I suppose that's where my, my position of no one's got the right not to be offended comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, absolutely... Because no matter absolutely. what you do, you're gonna offend someone's going to be offended. Yeah, yeah. So. No, and, 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 but they have every right to point out they're offended and have a dialogue yeah, with you. And I have every right to laugh at them. Yeah, that's right. But no, but they might start a dialogue with you yeah. as well. And then you might go, oh, you know what, maybe I understand what, you, I understand what you're coming from now. I've changed my mind. Or you might go, screw you, you're an idiot. But that's that's a part of a free society. Yes. Is as a part of a free society, you have to be prepared to cop it a bit. But I think to go back to the original question was: Is there a fallacy? I was like, well, it's just purely a non sequitur. It doesn't follow that because it's a joke, the consequences okay. of it are, are forgetting. If you want to have the consequences of making people laugh, the consequences of that you have to have every consequence. Logically speaking, you have to have every consequence of doing something. So 
another example is praise and blame. Everyone's happy to, when they do an action to take the praise for the action, but a lot of times they're not so happy to take the blame for it. So you know, any, you never get a CEO uh, of a company going, "Oh, our stock prices went through the roof," but it was just because all the stock prices were going up. Now they'll take credit for that, but then as soon as the stock prices plummet. Oh, well, that was just a general trend of that was going on with the ship. It's like, well, hang on a sec. <laughs> that sounds very yeah. familiar in politics as well. Yeah, yeah, well, of course, absolutely. And, and it works. This is a scary thing as well. So, yeah, I think to be consistent with that, if you want the joke to take credit for any of the good things that the joke does, you also have to take, be consistent and say it, take, is, it follows the bad things happen too. You might say, well, screw the bad things, oh well. So for another example, a Danish cartoon controversy. Mm. Now, again, you can say those jokes, whether they're funny or not, had a negative consequence of setting off the riots in, um, you know, all around the world and whatever and, and you know, even threats on people's lives and whatever. Now, you have to be prepared to say that those jokes were a part of the reason that that happened. But that doesn't mean you're, you're endorsing um, the reaction, the reaction was ridiculous, and they can go, you know, f- themselves. I better beat that one out. But you know, that reaction was ridiculous. Um, but the jokes did cause that to happen in the first place. But does that mean the jokes were bad? Mm. No, it's not saying the jokes are bad, but it's just saying logically that was the, one of the things that set it off. You know, and there was obviously lots more to it than that, including the addition of cartoons that never were published in Denmark, but the 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 clerics that went around deliberately causing up trouble added those themselves. So, yeah, so I, I think that hopefully answers your question. It is, and that's also the backup one with any fallacy. If you can't think of the name, or just call it a non-secretary, you're almost always right. Okay, well, I think uh, that wraps it up, Benno. Hi, Gary. Thanks okay, for joining me, you, mate. No and we'll be uh, hopefully back with another podcast in the next uh, couple of weeks. See you later. So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net.